near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to do anything with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has, give, has for you, and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me. Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Jerusalem, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had to er the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up, look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants, another harvests," And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. 
So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not just because of what you have told us, because what we have heard ourselves. Now, that we know, now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. The kids are invited to Kids Church. Thank you, guys. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water, Jesus said. This morning we find ourselves caught up in in another conversation in the Gospel of John. Last week we we went through um, the conversation with Nicodemus. This week we have this conversation with the woman at the well, and and the contrasts and the connections are similar. uh, or the contrast and the connections are interesting. The differences are, are huge, but the, the similarity of someone coming to Jesus and asking him questions, um, Jesus using earthly things to try and point to something beyond, um, this connection between uh, this teaching about all these sort of ordinary things contrasted with living water. In the last one, it was being born from above or being born from below, light and darkness. And Jesus here tries to draw the spirits of us and the woman at the well upward to think about what does it mean to have living water? What does it mean to thirst in a different way? And so this conversation, like I said last week, is we're invited in to witness to these conversations because they are meant to teach us. They aren't just there so we can go, oh, we know better than those people, or oh, we've got it down, or oh, they're thick-skinned, or even that, but to hear for ourselves, the answers to these questions. And if we're honest, sometimes, to place ourselves in that position too. Uh, How are you going to get water? You don't even have a bucket. And like, take that instance. It's, It's the ways in which we too want to secure our own futures, right? God comes to us um, in our time, in our place, through his spirit, and says to us, I'm willing to help you with that. I'm willing to aid you with that. Or or can you do something with me? And we point out, no, no, I've got this. And often (laughs) we don't. Um, Or we're missing something that's meant to be drawn out of there. Um, No, no, I've got this. And it's not the same thing. And so these aren't there just for us to sort of talk about the woman or talk about this, but to hear the conversation and the answers that Jesus gives us. But in difference from Nicodemus, Nicodemus is this insider who comes at night. And it seems like this might be a chance for him to come when nobody else is around so that he can sort of explore who Jesus is without having to give um, his own sort of, uh, or risk his own reputation, right? Uh, He's an insider to the synagogue. He's one of the rulers. And he has questions as sort of a learned scholar, although doesn't get it either. Woman at the well is an outsider sort of three times. First, she's a woman. As Jesus' disciples comes up to them, uh, why is he talking to this woman in public? Although they were afraid to ask. Uh, David asked, he said, I have the simplest part. I'm kind of useless. And I said, you're the disciples in the gospel. It's the definition of useless. They're always... always, uh, uh, they become great later as the Spirit's given to them, but pretty much most of their interactions are uh, 
instruction for us to listen to Jesus more. Uh, so for lack of a better word, useless. Um, uh, the, um, the challenge then is, is, is that she's this outsider first as a woman, but then as, as she's a Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans strongly dislike each other. And there's rabbinic sayings at the time, both that you shouldn't talk to somebody, another woman in public, possibly not even your wife. It's hard to, to know how serious to take these things because they're written down and preserved to us and what the context was for the saying. Um, but that was, like, we can find rabbis who said that along this time. But even around Samaritans, it was even worse. It was like, don't even use the utensils that they use. Don't interact with them. Don't be with them. Don't do this. The last thing is, is, is we find out later in the dialogue, she's a woman who has, has had five husbands, and the one she's living with now is not her husband. Now, uh, one of the challenges is to interpret many different things into the silence of the text there. She's a prostitute. She's been divorced five times. Um, she's just been with many men. She's, um, her husbands have died. That's actually an option in the ancient world. Um, and so she just keeps getting passed along as if she has no other choice. Um, but the fact of the matter is the text doesn't tell us why she's had five husbands. Uh, could be her own doing could be a, a doing of, of just random things in the world. But what it does say is she's, she's tried multiple times to find security in the world, and each time, in some sense, it's failed her. The Nicodemus comes at night is, is in some sense, to remain respectable, or he hopes to. Um, to come at noontime to a well is to sort of give up respectability. Now, there's another instance where we can interpret more into the story that's not there. Oftentimes, all the women would go in the evening or in the morning to get the water for the day. That she goes at noontime either means uh, that she's not welcome with the other women or that she's a bit of a loner um, or that she's just thirsty at noontime, which is another option. Um, the most interesting comparison for the noontime thing is it's the same hour at which Jesus is crucified, and it's at that moment he says, I thirst. Um, so this connection with water and this time has another meaning too, if you want to read into it. But anyways, we know that she's an outsider for two reasons that we can find in the ancient text. And the probability that she has five husbands and is now living with one who isn't suggests that there's another way in which this is not a normal conversation. And if you want to go back and read Nicodemus in contrast, there's moments where she seems to get it better than Nicodemus, and there's moments where she seems to be just as confused as he is. And yet that's for us. We share in that confusion as well. What does it mean for it to be this way? What does it, what does it mean when somebody comes up to you and says, if you knew the gift of the one you ask, you would have living water? It's not an easy answer to the question. Uh, I don't think we'd instantly jump to be like, oh, this makes sense, I get it. Um, we too would have questions back and forth. Um, this is how uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, who I find helpful when I look at the passages, divides up this passage, which is somewhat long. We didn't read the first part, but there's uh, in verses 1 through 6, there's a little bit about why Jesus had to come to Samaria. It has to do with some baptizing and that Jesus, in the Greek it says sort of had to come, which implies that this mission um, had to take place. This mission to the outsiders, this mission to the enemies, this mission to people who aren't included in what Jesus is supposed to be doing. 
is what Jesus does. Uh, and his welcome here is different than almost in all the sort of Jewish villages. The next is Jesus gives this uh, short, he calls it, sermonette. On, uh, Jesus wants to give his renewing spirit to asking people. Um, and that's in verses uh, 7 through 15. Uh, true worship, how the Father, um, too, is actively searching worshipers by his spirit, in, uh, drawn into his spirit and truth, this direction up. And Jesus' fulfilling work, how the Trinitarian others are empowering disciples in their life work. That's the part about the harvest. Um, but there's sort of these three ways, but sort of an intro that this sermon is set up upon. And, and you'll find the hard part is, is that the, you know, it would have been nice to just preach on the woman at the well, but the conclusion of that story is interrupted by the, the, the useless disciples in David's opinion um, in the middle by them coming back and... Uh, uh, interrupting the exchange. Um, and so you kind of have to walk through the whole thing to get the whole story. But, but we'll sort of walk through it in these sort of ways too as sort of look at this living water sermon, this true worship sermon, and then this fulfilling work sermon as the people come back and praise Jesus. So the, the story began today with this interesting thing. Uh, soon as some, uh, uh, man... So Jesus, uh, Jesus sits down and he asks this woman for a drink. Um, would you please get me a drink? Would you get me some, food, uh, some water while well, the disciples had gone to the village to get food? The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. Why are you asking me for a drink? One of the interesting things in this passage that, that church history has really quite latched onto um, is that Jesus is alone, and he, uh, sorry, uh, and Jesus was tired from the journey, and he sat down at the well. It was about noon. That's not up there. That Jesus is tired is one of those things that proclaims the humanity of Christ in this passage. So often, uh, the church has always had two temptations. Historically, one is to make Jesus so divine that he could never be tired, and that it's almost like he doesn't become flesh and he doesn't touch the earth, constantly condemned as a heresy. Um, the other temptation is to make Jesus so human that he's not divine at all. He's just this uh, enlightened individual walking the path here on earth. Um, the strong and weak um, somebody referenced was, is held together by that, um, that he is the word, the becoming flesh. So that he is strong in the sense that he is the word of God, and that his weakness inhabits and that he takes on our flesh, our humanity, our state. He comes and he's thirsty and he asks for a drink. Again, that reference to um, the, the uh, cross can maybe not be lost at this time too. I'm thirsty. Um, and what's interesting about this is that Jesus comes here more in a reciprocal relationship, which is a bit odd. Jesus asks for a drink of water. I think it's Thomas Jefferson or Ben Franklin who said, when you move to a new town, when you find like a new area, the first thing you should do is ask your neighbor for a favor because it actually builds the reciprocal relationship more than you doing something for them. If you move in and you bring them cookies and mow their yard, they're like, oh man, this person's going to be a pain. Um, uh, that's very human. <laughs> um, 
but if they come and they say, hey, do you happen to know where the best spot to get pizza or gas or something is, they've done something for you, and now they feel like they have a relationship in which they're sort of this co-need for each other. Uh, Jesus coming to the outsider and saying, please give me a drink, established some sense of sort of this reciprocal relationship right off the bat. And she correctly asked, what is it you're doing here? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. We don't get along. We are like oil and water. Jesus comes to her and asks for something. In the next passage, um, they talk about this water. Sorry, I divided it up on the slide, thinking that would make it easier, and then it didn't. Um, uh, she says to him, you are a Jew and I am a... Oh, sorry. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his, his livestock. That she comes back to him um, and asks, you know, where does this living water come from? Where is this? Where are you going to get this from? I mean, Jesus is the one who asks for a drink. She asks a question about why is it you would relate to me? And Jesus responds with, I have everlasting water. I have living water. I have water that will never let you thirst again. She correctly answers this sort of question is, how is it you're going to get at them? And, and even that, how are you greater than the one who built this well? How are you better than Jacob, the one who provided this place? Jesus continues, everyone who drinks of this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I will give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now, water, Jesus is in, in the previous passage is taking um, being born from above or being born from below, something we all go through, and using it to draw Nicodemus's heart upward to a different truth. Water is an essential element of life. Here, Jesus, too, uses something ordinary to dry and draw our hearts to something deeper. In the next passage, when the disciples come back, it's food. I have food you don't know about. It comes from doing the Father's will. One of the amazing parts about these exchanges is how ordinary Jesus relates to us through things that even today are just the common things of life, birth, water, food, to draw us to a deeper reality, to see more than meets the eye, to see more than, than what's going on on the surface. Is pointing out to us that there's something greater going on. And for Israel and a desert people, water is an important resource. It is literally life and death. We happen to live in a place with faucets and drinking fountains and clean water. Um, but to live in a desert, to live in a place where water is needed for life but is often hard to find, to say that you have living water, water that transforms water that comes from the inside and never makes you thirst again, is to have something of great value. Um, we have bottled water <laughs> um, that we can just go and purchase. Uh, but Jesus talks about this well within someone. The, liter the literalism of the woman sort of sticks here. Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. 
and have to keep coming here to draw water. This is where Jesus is trying to use earthly things to draw our hearts up to higher reality. Give me this water so I don't have to come and get water again. Very literal translation of what he's talking about. Um, It's almost, I mean, it's hard for me, I don't know, I try not to read these things into the text that much. It's hard for me not to hear almost mocking in it a little bit. Like, if such water existed, we'd never have to come and get water again. Um, Surely she knows that that this water doesn't exist. or at least this one is, is sort of playing with her. So, so give me this water, and I'll never have to come here again. Which is why Jesus' uh, response to that, I think, is so interesting. He told her all she needs to do is ask for it, but he responds to her, go and call your husband and come back. The shift in conversation there. Talking about water. Go and get your husband and come back. I have no husband, Jesus replies. Jesus said, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. There's a bit of of this notion which in um, preaching and teaching and listening to God's word, we have these passages and instances of law. And law is meant to sort of cut. Law brings us down. When we hear the law, it's meant to point out that we don't achieve, that we are not perfect, and that's that and the other. And there are these passages of gospel that heal. That God is the doctor of our souls. It's not hard to hear the question, call your husband, as an instance of a cut. Again, we don't know why she's had five husbands, But part of that says all the possibilities that she's tried to grasp to get security in the world have fallen apart. Particularly marriage in the ancient world is one way of gaining a lot of security. Five of them have not worked out. And the one she's with now is not her husband either. And it's easy to read a lot into that, but there's ways in which How many times have we tried to make sure our own security in the world is done by us ourselves as we seek and chafe after multiple loves? Doesn't have to be somebody other than your partner or somebody along the way of finding your partner. We chase after these loves to try and find our own security. How many times do we check the things that we store up these resources and places or gifts, or even our own lusts and desires so that we have our own security. I uh, had some not great jobs, but there's this, when you don't have a great job, you can begin to make your life about the thing that comes after work. And so it was that, you know, I'm doing this, but my rest is in that moment when I get home when I can do X, Y, or Z. I found my own husband and my own loves to try and make the world manageable. And uh, I brought this up. I've, I've, I've used this analogy before or, or image before because I only have two. So welcome to Defiance Church. Uh, m- many of you weren't here then. Um, uh, but there's this idea in which uh, that we continually sort of go around and try to find sort of our own loves to fill up our own lives and hearts. 
that we try to secure it. Now, what the woman points out that's true of us still is that, like, we get these. After work, I had my moment of relaxing, my dependency on beer or cigarettes, my dependency on making sure that I have the right amount of money always saved, whatever it is. It fills up a little, but it is so fragile. What happens is it just ends up dumped out. And so we come back to it over and over and over again. Similar to the woman at the well, we have to go back. Wouldn't it be nice to have water, life, meaning that didn't have to be filled up over and over again? Now, what I love is that um, there are Christians like this. This is my favorite, is that they think this is how it goes. is Jesus fills us right to the brim. Don't touch me. Don't come near me. Don't tempt me. And then even better are the Christians who, if I was like a worse pastor, I'd throw it in Don's face, but that think they get water so they can go out and mission and dump it on people. It's like, oh, I've been filled up, and my job is to regurgitate this onto my neighbors and my friends and just spit it out continually. Um, And then you go back to whatever experience that fills you up. Even in the church, we do this with religious goods your mountaintop experience, your, your grand moment, your whatever it is, and you go fill back up so you can go out again and just toss it up on people, which is not what Jesus intends for us either. And so the analogy that Jesus sort of settles on is that it's sort of like a living water that sort of streams out, that it just keeps going, that it's not this well that runs dry. It's not this one that has to be constantly refilled. It's something that continually fills up and renews within us. You don't go and seek it out again. You don't go, I'm 90% full of what God has promised me today. Where am I going to find the other 10%? And similar to the woman on the well, this is not one either that we keep going back and back to in that way. This is a promise of God that will transform our interior lives into a well that's constantly being renewed. That we don't cycle in dependencies of addiction, finding our own security, of searching in the world. And for many of us, we go, that's a beautiful image. The Christian life often doesn't feel that way. And it's a big challenge, I think, that we, um, one, I think, find our other loves enticing to go back to. Find our other husbands interesting. Part of it is because that one we we get thirst in, right? Uh, This one, in some sense, would solve the problem of thirst. Jesus' notion in John's gospel, he's often talking about trusting into, believing into, leaning into the reality of which he is doing. Not something you do. This is, this is where I think often for me I fail at this is because the water doesn't feel like it's running in my heart the way it is. I must do something more. Doing exactly the thing that I did before with my other false loves, trying to turn Jesus into one of those loves as well. There's constancy and steadiness into residing there. It's true within your soul even if you try to shut it off. 
we get surrounded with other noises, other husbands, other times, and other places to sort of drag us away from that. But it is the truth of what we have within us, that God is calling us into this way of being. You're right when you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. Just one other instance is in the book of Kings, um, Samaria is sort of divided up among five other gods. Uh, I think it's King 17, um, 1 Kings 17. But uh, uh, there's a bit of, if you have five husbands, you have five gods. And this one that we have in Rome now is not also a god. The end of the passage, Jesus, Jesus, the Samaritans are going to call him the savior of the world, which is a sociopolitical term at the time. Caesar calls himself the savior of the world. So to call Jesus the savior of the world is to empty themselves of the other places in which they were seeking to be saved and secure, but finding it in God. She, uh, Ephraim the Syrian, I think that's the quote on the back of the bulletin, um, he, his quote tracks her journey well. We're going to see this here because she says you're a prophet. First, she caught the sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet. Sir, you must be a prophet if you can see this in my life. And then after that, the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. This is, he's interpreting into this, but I still like the quote. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed her dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet, and she adored the Christ. Sort of the journey that takes place here. Um, but what's interesting is her question. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim a place you must worship in Jerusalem. I love this question because in pastoral life or in Christian life, there are questions that are complete deflections. You're right, you have no husband. Hey, by the way, I was wondering about this theologically complex question that has nothing to do with what we were just talking about. Um, but it often reveals more, too. Oh, we found that out, that you're a prophet. I'm going to ask you a question that seems like it has nothing to do with what we're doing, but there's a chance it might also have to do with the heart's deepest longing. My security certainly isn't coming from men. Can I find the right spot to worship? Can you clear up this problem that I seem to be having? Is it here or there that I should bow and place my loyalty? Because the other objects don't seem to be doing it well. And this is often the case, I think, if you listen to people, which is hard to do, I don't think it's easy. Oftentimes, they're revealing more than they think when they ask. Our place of, of, of the world beyond, of beauty, is this place. Your place is that place, which is right. Show me. Teach me that. Jesus, I don't think, um, he's helpful in a way that she doesn't expect. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when will you worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The answer isn't going back to being a Jew. It's not where you are. Something is going to be transformed from that. Now, what he does say is you Samaritans worship what we do not know, which has to do with Samaritan history. And Jews, we worship what we do know. So for salvation comes from the Jews. 
Jesus fails that interfaith dialogue. Um, you guys don't know anything you're doing. We worship where salvation comes from. Um, but he speaks this truth. And then he says, yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are kind of the worshipers Father seeks. God is spirit, and worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, this passage, I don't know. Um, I heard uh, it's a, an Australian sermon on how we need to worship in spirit and truth, but it was just great because when people have an accent, you listen so much better. Um, again, listening to people is hard, but if you sound like an Australian, I'm like, tell me more. Um, uh, you must have wisdom from beyond. Um, it was early in the morning, um, and it was on. But his big thing was like, we need integrity in our worship. We need to worship in spirit and in truth. What's interesting is, is people have read the Gospels more, and this is the early church interpretation and what's coming back in the modern world, is that this is the way in which worship happens, in spirit and in truth. It's not about you and your disposition. It's the spirit in which God promises to us. It's the truth in which is revealed in God's reality through Jesus Christ. So often, I think when I heard that sermon, I was like, well, how do I clean this place up so that I worship in spirit and in truth? Um, and what Jesus is saying is the true worshipers will be gathered in in spirit and in truth. If you're worshiping, it's in spirit and in truth. That's what the Father desires. And what's, what's going on here, in, in, even in John, this sort of Trinitarian way in which the Father is getting praise, the truth, which is the Son, um, in John's language, and, and the Spirit. And this is part of the reason we make that argument today is because you trace this out. Um, where is John using the phrase Spirit? Always towards the Holy Spirit. Where is John using the phrase truth? Always towards the reality embodied in Jesus Christ. Whereas he talking about the Father, it's this uh, sort of transcendent reality. And so we have this way in which if you look at the way John uses the words, it's not about your spirit and your truth being gathered together. It's about this outside thing which gathers us in spirit and in truth. These are the worshipers God desires the woman says, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus then uses one of his phrases, I am. Uh, it's filled in in different English translations, all different ways, because it's hard to do, but essentially says, I am. Now, I am is this phrase that John uses 177 times. The other three Gospels used 34 times combined. Jesus, in John's Gospel, he has seven famous I ams, too. Um, I am the gate, I am the truth truth lining up later. I'm um, the way, the truth, and the life. He's got these famous I am sayings. But Jesus is always saying this I am thing as if to draw us into that this is God incarnate amongst us. I am the one you are speaking to. I am he. This then, then the disciples come back and ruin the party. No. Um, uh, they, they find the shock of him Talking with her, it's interesting they don't note the Samaritan thing. Um, then leaving the water of Jordan, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come and see a man who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of town and made their way toward him. Um, so the people are coming out. The disciples are trying to get Jesus to eat something. Jesus uses this instance to teach them about another truth, which is that there is food that's beyond. As there was water beyond, there is food and nutrient beyond. His is doing the will of the Father who sent me. 
Now, I had, um, some of you, this is going to be hard to believe, I had a bit of a social justice phase in seminary where I was very motivated by what we could do for the poor. Still am, still did a lot with that. Um, but saw it as such an imperative, anything else, even worshiping, could be a distraction to that. And I was sitting with my friend who was a priest, and he was telling me about um, these mystics who would wall themselves in and just live based off of prayer and minimal amount of food. And he said, isn't that beautiful, Matt? And I said, no. They should be busy. I'm still not quite sure what to do with those traditions that practice the severe sort of self-renunciation to find out, can our food be doing the will of God? But I think that's a, a, a good teaching for us to hear. No, the Christian life is about being busy. No, the Christian life is about residing in the one who has the nutrients for you. Abide with me is going to come up later in John's gospel. I thought it was filling yourself up with water and dumping it out on homeless people. And instead, it was finding this other truth. Jesus then speaks about the harvest. What happens is, is the other people are, I think, just a plain reading, it seems like. The people coming out are people who are going to be the harvest of the disciples, despite the fact that they didn't tell everyone, the woman told everyone. Other people are going to plant. See, the time is ripe now. The Samaritans are already believing, despite the fact that you guys are concerned about me eating some lunch. Um, and so he says that these people are coming out. Um, so then many Samaritans in town believe. Um, town, he stays with them for two days, which is quite unique for Jesus, stays with them and teaches them. And they say to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and know that this man really is the savior of the world. Um, we as Christians, it seems like a slight to the woman that they're like, ah, your story was nice, but now we believe because we've seen the real guy. That's all of us. Um, no matter how good your testimony is, no matter how good the preaching is, no good, matter how good the worship is, once the people meet the real thing, they go, it was nice that you pointed us in this direction, but now we've seen and believed because we've known him. If the church could invent some gimmick where people didn't get to that point, it wouldn't be a church, that's for sure. It's about meeting and residing with that one and so last thing for today um, is this passage uh, that you can skip over if you read it too fast. The woman left her water jar beside the well. Um, she comes to thirst. She believes this is the utensil that brings forth water. She points out to Jesus that he doesn't even have one of these. And after her interaction with him, she leaves it at the well. All you have to do is ask for living water. As she goes forth to the townspeople, she doesn't have the utensil to secure her own water, her own husbands, her own life, her own care. What she has in its depth is that living water coming within her. We often, as people, as we hear the call of Christ, I have something greater for you. 
Well, let me bring all the stuff I can do to make it work. You have to leave your jar, your ways of doing and being and trying to make sure it all comes out your way at the side of the well. Then you go forth with the news of the one that you've met. And that transforms not only yourself, but brings the news of the savior of the world to outside of the well area, to new places. Let us pray. God, we have learned from Nicodemus's questions, and so too we learn from the woman at the well's questions. Some of us, when we approach you, we come as insiders at night with our own questions and thoughts and probings, and you point us to what does it mean to be born and to live on a different plane. Some of us come in the day as outsiders just trying to get a little bit more water for the day. And it's you who interrupt us, draw us deeper into what it might mean to have living water inside of us. God, we ask that we may become your people who have this eternal kind of life in that previous conversation, or this living water, these streams bubbling up within us so that we are people renewed